Hi everyone, Droop Road here with the much requested podcast topic. Today we do a deep dive into the topic of anxiety with Arielle Garten, who's a neuroscientist, a trained psychotherapist, an accomplished entrepreneur, and the co-founder of Muse, the meditation wearable device company. You're gonna love this interview because in this interview we break down the idea of what anxiety is and what's going on in the brain when we're feeling it. And most importantly, practical steps that we can take to address it. And if you're an entrepreneur or want to be one one day, you won't want to miss this interview because Ariel and I talk about bringing mindfulness into the workplace and into a team setting. And we also talk about how to supercharge our focus and reduce the anxieties that entrepreneurs go through. Now on to my formal intro for Ariel Garten. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Perot, serial entrepreneur and executive producer of the Broken Brain docuseries. Each week, we'll invite a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live your best life. This week's guest is a new friend of mine, Ariel Garden. Ariel is a neuroscientist, innovator, and entrepreneur whose driving purpose is to empower and help others overcome mental obstacles in order to live healthy, happy lives, and reach their maximum potential. She's one of the founders of Muse, the brain-sensing headband that assists and trains meditation and mindfulness. Muse is now used and loved around the world in five languages with over five million sessions of meditation. Incredible. Before founding Muse, Ariel was not only trained as a neuroscientist and a psychotherapist, but also started her own international clothing line while she worked in labs researching Parkinson's disease and hippocampal neurogenesis. Ariel and her team have been featured in over a thousand media pieces, including CNN, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, and recipients of multiple innovation awards for their incredible work on their headband. These days, Ariel can be found at home playing with her two-year-old or on stage across the world speaking about happiness, meditation, understanding mental health, empowering women in business, or telling her own innovation story, consistently giving her audience the tools they need to help them become their best selves. Ariel, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. Thank you so much, Drew. It's a total honor to be here. Absolutely. You know, this week, just a couple of days ago, where we're recording this now on October 12th, but a few days ago on October 10th was World Mental Health Day. And I know you're an advocate, not just in the work that you do as a CEO of Muse, but in your background and your training as a scientist and also a therapist, that you're very passionate about this topic of mental health and having the conversation be out there and people opening up and sharing their stories. And you've also been very open about your own journey and how after having uh, your child, you suffered from postpartum and um, what I understand to be severe anxiety. I'd love to start off there and talk a little bit about uh, mental health and the importance of people speaking up. You know, I think the thing that's very important to share about your story, which is why I wanted to start there, is that you're trained in this area, you know about it, and yet still you suffer from it. I think that breaks down the stigma that people have with mental health, that somehow something is wrong with them if they're suffering from the spectrum of mental health challenges, whether 
it's a long-term challenge or something that they're facing in the short term. Yeah, we all have mental health difficulties that we need to deal with in our lives. It's just a very basic statement, as in we all have them, each and every one of us. And so that makes it something that is not frightening or bad or weird. It's just normal. Within your life, some days you feel more on top of it. You feel better about yourself. Your self-esteem is better. Other days, your self-esteem is lesser. You feel a sense of anxiety. Some people feel a sense of anxiety regularly. All of that is totally normal and totally okay. It's just who we are as humans. And that needs to be a part of our everyday conversation, how we feel, and then in turn being able to offer the tools and techniques of which there are many, many out there to help everybody understand what's going on and apply technologies, tools, ideas to make you feel better, to recognize that there is something that we can do to take control of the kinds of thoughts that we have in our own mind, our negative thinking, our low self-esteem, and actually turn the lens inward, reach out to one another, help and support, and help everybody feel better every day. Let's talk about anxiety. You know, We've talked about it in the docuseries. Let's unpack it a little bit. And I think especially it's important because depending on what polls you look at on there, it's a little bit difficult to measure, but there's a general consensus that anxiety is on the rise and that especially for millennials have one of the biggest growth that's happened in that generation for anxiety, according to the American Psychiatric Association. If I would give you a soapbox that you could stand on and just talk a little bit about anxiety as a scientist, as a therapist, uh, what would you like to share about the topic? Sure. This is actually one of my favorite topics. So anxiety is a spectrum. When we have a thought about something that's uncomfortable, that creates a sensation of stress, which we then experience in our body. And the experience of stress, which on the spectrum leads stress leads to anxiety, depending on where you are, it feels like a rising in our heart, a beating of our chest, a sense of kind of vibration or wateriness inside of ourselves, and then a negative thinking loop that becomes triggered because we feel this anxious state in our body, which leads us to believe, oh no, there's something wrong, which leads us to feel more anxiety in our body. So anxiety is basically our body's way of trying to tell us that, oh no, something is wrong out there. There is a problem. The reality of it is most of the time, the problem is really minor. And the sensation that we feel in our body makes us think that there's something truly terribly wrong. And so what we need to learn to do is understand the physiological response that happens and be able to sit with it. And just say, okay, you know, my body's freaking out right now because it's trying to tell me there's something wrong. But actually, most things are okay. And the one thing that I can think of that's wrong, let me think about how I can just manage that and control it. So anxiety comes from our amygdala in a lot of senses. Our amygdala is the fight and flight response. It's a very primitive organ in our brain whose job is to look out for danger. And it's constantly scanning. And back in the day, it would look for things like saber-toothed tigers that wanted to eat us. I'm kidding because we didn't exist at the time of saber-toothed tigers, but you know what I mean. It's looking for snakes and fire and danger. And so it had a real job to do to like give you the sense of arousal when it saw a snake or fire or danger so that you could run away really quickly and know there was something bad that you need to escape from. Well, in our modern society, there's not a lot of snakes and fire and danger at any moment. And so we've still have a job for this amygdala, but now it's scanning the environment to look for things that it labels as dangerous that are often really quite benign. It's displaced. So it looks at that colleague in our workplace and says, oh no, you know, they don't like me. Let's create some amygdala response. Or it looks at the traffic that you're stuck in and says, oh no, I'm stuck in traffic. I'm going to be late. Let's create some fire response. And so it's this really broken alarm system that we have the opportunity once we recognize that 
to dial back and say, okay, well, just because the alarm's going off because I'm sitting here in traffic doesn't actually mean it's that terrible. And you know what? There's nothing I can do about it anyways. And so you want to engage your prefrontal cortex, the more modern part of our thinking brain, to downregulate that amygdala and talk to it and say, no, no, it's totally okay. You know what? We're stuck in traffic. We'll be five minutes late. We'll just send them a text right now. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's put on a podcast and just relax. So we have the opportunity to train this, you know, hyperreactive amygdala to be more appropriately responding to the environment around us. You know, you mentioned a really great phrase. You said to sit with it. And I think that sometimes people get caught up. What you hear is that there's this anxiety loop where yes. the record player continues to spin around the wheel. And there's this feeling of each thought builds on the other. And that sort of heightens the anxiety. So when you talk about sitting with it, what does that look like? So that looks like recognizing that just because your body is firing off doesn't mean there's something wrong. It's breaking that loop that you just described. So typically you'd start with a stressful thought like, oh no, I'm going to be late, which gets your body activated. And so you feel your heart racing and a little buzz and your blood pumping faster, which then your brain says, oh my God, my body's reacting and racing. There's something wrong. And so then it gives you more of that thought, which then reacts your body stronger and on and on. And so being able to break that loop and just sit with your physiology and say, you know what, just because my heart is racing doesn't mean there's something wrong that I need to have negative thinking about and respond to. The example that I always give is imagine you are in an apartment building with a broken fire alarm because anxiety is really just a broken alarm. So you live in an apartment building and day one, the fire alarm goes off. You could say, oh my God, you grab your hat, your coat, you run to the street. Everybody's out there with you. Day two, fire alarm goes off at the same time. You grab your hat, your coat. You're like, this is weird, but I run to the street. Oh no, what's wrong? Day three, alarm goes off. You're starting to get kind of wise to it. Like, hmm, maybe there's really nothing wrong. Maybe this alarm's just broken. Three weeks in, the alarm's still going off every day at the same time. And you're just sitting there cooking your eggs, watching Oprah being like, oh, right, that annoying alarm again. Okay, whatever. And so anxiety is just that. It's a broken alarm. And you can get to the place where you change your reaction to it. So you might be observing the fact that your body's having a response, but you don't need to respond to it. You can just watch the physiology. And over time, that physiology decreases and decreases and decreases as you no longer feed that fire. You know, you, it's just another phrase, another word that you shared to become the observer. It's almost like there's a little bit of a detaching from your thoughts as being you. So there's, there's thoughts that you're having, you know, you're not anxious, you're having anxious thoughts and those are there and you're trying to exist with them. So here's these anxious thoughts. They're real. You know, we can't say that they're not real. They're a hundred percent real. They're things that we're feeling. And then right next to them is like who we really are, that observer that's watching all that happen. Yes. And that's actually the role of the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of your brain that allows us to allows you to rise above and to see the landscape and to detach from what's happening and to be a detached and curious observer. This is the real practice that we learn in meditation, where you're able to observe your thoughts and observe your bodily sensations. So you can have a thought, you can be thinking that thought, but that thought doesn't need to be thinking you. You can simply observe the fact that you are having this thought or having this sensation without actually having to engage the physiology or the uh, loop thinking in it. 
So sometimes the mind impacts the body, and of course, sometimes the body impacts the mind. And in our docuseries, Broken Brain, we talked about how our gut-brain connection plays with each other and how sometimes our anxiety, depression, other spectrum of mental health disorders can be inflated by food sensitivities, by missing bacteria that's there, by other components, and, and sometimes just big transitions that are happening in our life. You know, you had, you have a son, and you shared, um, you have an Instagram video, I think, that you made earlier this year when we had this um, couple of very famous actors and celebrities who had committed uh, suicide, and you talked about the importance of talking about mental health, and you shared that after you had your son, you went into, you experienced postpartum. And we had just had Dr. Maggie Nay on the podcast and she's um, talked a bunch about postpartum. Let's talk about your experience there and with you even being trained in this stuff and being able to witness it. Of course, ha- one interesting insight from Dr. Maggie Nay is that there's literally a thousand fold drop in hormones and other things that are happening in a woman's body like immediately after the child is born. How did you navigate that time period and what were some of the tools that you embraced to work with some of the symptoms that you were experiencing? Sure. So it was a really unusual time. So you give birth. It's supposed to be the most amazing moment of your life. You're going to fall madly in love with your child and everything's going to be glorious and glowy. And after I gave birth, it, it was amazing. Things felt great, but I also didn't feel myself. I felt a rising in my body of that anxiety sensation. Um, I had traumatic negative thoughts. I had a constellation of physiological and mental experiences that I'd never experienced before. And as you said, I was trained as a mental health professional. I spent almost a decade working with people one-on-one as a psychotherapist, guiding them through the most difficult moments inside their own minds. And all of a sudden, it happened to me and I was blindsided. I've clinically learned about postpartum depression. You know, clinically it made perfect sense to me. But when it happened, it actually took even me a little bit to clue in that this is what it was, that I was having postpartum depression. And believe me, what you learn about in a textbook is nothing like actually experiencing it. And I went to the postpartum mental health clinic. Luckily, we had a resource in the hospital. Actually, the day I gave birth, a social worker comes to you and says, you know, here's the postpartum mental health clinic. And normally I would have like, I'm sure a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I'll never need that. And I just sort of took the card and tucked it away. Being a mental health professional, like, great. It's good to know where the resources are. And as I began unearthing it and understanding that my experience was really normal, and actually this is a super big highlight because a lot of times when you give birth, you go through the experience of not feeling connected to your child in the same way that you expect it to be. Or, you know, not wanting to be where you are at that moment and like looking at the change that happens in your life and being like, oh my God, where, where was the me that I was a year, a year ago or six months ago? How is my life so different now? And you think you're the only one. And through talking about this story and you know, a lot of my, my goal is to empower other women to understand that all of these experiences that you're feeling are totally normal. Don't feel bad about it. Don't beat yourself up about it. It is okay. Not everybody lives the dream at every moment. And as you go through that and you find support, one of the most important things that I was able to use was meditation. Luckily, I'd been trained in meditation beforehand. I make a meditation tool. And so I was really well versed in the ability to watch my physiological experience and say, okay, this is just anxiety. It's just happening in my body. I don't need to suck. I don't need to be sucked into it. 
I could watch the traumatic thoughts that I was having and say like, okay, these are just thoughts. I don't need to dig into them. I don't need to feel like a bad person because I'm having them. It's just an illness that's happening in my brain at this moment. It's just a constellation of chemicals at this moment in time creating these thoughts and they don't mean anything. They don't mean anything about me. They don't mean anything about the world. They can come and they can go. Mm, that's beautiful. I think that that's such a key point. They don't mean anything. It's often the, I had a mentor one time, a, a monk from the Jain tradition who said that, you know, when we have a negative thought or we have a series of, let's say, anxious thoughts that happen, we almost get into like two car accidents. The first accident is just the impact of the thoughts themselves. And then the second impact is the meaning that we make of the situation. Um, It's kind of like in traditional uh, traffic safety. Uh, They talk about basically there's two accidents always whenever you get into a car accident. The first accident is the car impacting another car or the barrier. And the second one is if you're not wearing your seatbelt, it's the internal organs slam against your own body and that's where most of the damage happens and it's like most of the damage happens where we inject the meaning and now say i'm not worthy i'm not this i'm not that and and i think that's so important to reflect on because i think it happens without us even noticing sometimes it happens without us noticing 99.99999% of the time I mean, humans are meaning-making machines. That's part of what separates us from, you know, what we consider separates us from some of the rest of the animal species, that we are able to ascribe meaning to often things that don't have any meaning and say, this is a computer, this is a table, this is a chair, and as such, use them in ways, and it creates a lot of value for us to create meaning. But that meaning-making also gets us into trouble when we make meaning in ways that don't serve us. Like, oh, no, that person looked at me funny. They must not like me. My hair must look stupid. I'm not good enough. I don't belong here and on and on and on. So that very meaning made a king part of us that makes us so human is also a part of us that can really deride us unnecessarily. And so the art of meditation teaches you to detach from the story and to simply observe an experience of life without having to make meaning around it. You can, and you can choose to make meaning where it's worthy, uh, or where it makes sense, or where it supports, or where it makes life more beautiful, or where it helps you communicate. But you can then choose to not make meanings in those times when it doesn't serve. Let's dive deeper into meditation. And of course, we're going to continue to come back to it throughout the interview. What do we know about meditation and anxiety? What's happening inside of the body? I know one of your favorite subjects, and you've given TED Talks on this before, and you've shared another podcast even on the a podcast that Muse is now a part of, Untangle, uh, which everybody should definitely check out. What's happening in the brain when we step into meditation and how does that impact our anxious thoughts? So I've talked a little bit about this relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So as you heard, the amygdala is your fight or flight response. And as you meditate, you engage your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex, you can kind of think of as the parent center of your brain and the amygdala being the child. And there's actually neuronal projections from the PFC to your amygdala, directing it and down-regulating it. So as you meditate, your prefrontal cortex actually is sending messages to your amygdala where it's appropriate saying, nope, we don't need to respond. Nope, you can down-regulate. Nope, it's okay. And so as you do this, as you look at a brain of a long-term meditator, you actually see both the decrease in the activation of their uh, amygdala, and you can even see in some meditators a decrease in the size of the amygdala. So you're truly getting a down-regulation there, and as a result, a down-regulation of that anxiety. 
In meditators, you also see an increase in activity and in some meditators, an increase in the size of the insula. And the, the insula has a lot of functional uses inside the brain as it relates to the body and the world. One of them is being able to recognize sensation in the body. So as you train your insula, you're training your ability to recognize sensation inside your body and then as such be able to change that relationship to it. Say, okay, that's just sensation. And that's again the prefrontal cortex coming in. So in functional medicine, we talk about adding and removing. Sometimes the reason why our body's not functioning or our cell's not functioning properly is because it's it's missing something. So we have to add it. Add in nutrients, add in additional support. And sometimes the reasons that that their function is not happening within a cell is because something needs to be removed. So we're talking about adding in meditation and we're bringing it in. We're going to come back to meditation in a second. Let's talk about on like a practical level. And I feel like you're the perfect person to ask because you're a mom, you're a CEO of an incredibly successful I'm company. I'm actually not a, I'm not the CEO anymore. Okay. I'm the chief evangelism officer. So I you're a founder down as the CEO. Yeah, I'm and a founder. you're the chief evangelist officer, but basically you've been the CEO before. So you've dealt yes, with all I have that. For seven years. You've built a company from scratch. You have been involved in other projects even before Muse. And what what are the things that you notice on a day to day basis that um, you've done in your own life to create a little buffer between you and getting caught up in the sort of momentum in the world that can create anxiousness? Are there tips? Are there tricks? Are there other aspects? Whether it's technology or how you set boundaries around your routine that protect you from getting caught up in the momentum that might normally lead to creating internal anxiety? Sure, there's a ton of them. And I would say the first one is to avoid negative thinking. So at any point in this journey of creating the like insane products and stuff that I've created, I could have easily said, nope, this is not possible, I'm never gonna find the money, this will never happen. But I didn't think those things. I had this really clear vision that I was going to do this, that this was possible, that we could do it. And as you speak a clear vision that resonates and makes sense, people join you and people come and support you. So the second important aspect is creating a team, being able to build people around you because you don't have to have all of the skills. You can have grand visions of something that you want to create and you don't have to know how to do 95% of it. Provided it's a good idea, you can find people to join you and support you. And so once you have a team in place and you don't have to feel like you have to do it all yourself, that becomes really helpful. Then that leads you to the idea of not holding too much control. So it will become absolutely crazy if you feel like you need to control and manage every part of this puzzle. So you need to really, truly be able to deeply trust the people who are working around you and trust that they can accomplish what they need to in order to build the shared journey together and check in, support, you know, find the holes for one another, but never, never micromanage. Makes everybody crazy in the process. For me, I know when my best working times are, and that's at night. I've always been a night owl. Um, so it's once I'm no longer hungry, once the phone no longer rings, once there's nobody there to bother me, I can just sit down and work beautifully and creatively. That's when I get into my flow space. So I religiously protect that nighttime when I was younger, it was from, you know, eight till two or three in the morning. And then that's when my amazing work was. Um, now it's from when I put the kid to bed at 830 till about 1130, because then I immediately need to run to bed. And so I religiously protect that amount of time so that I can just get into that flow and do my best work. And then one of the really helpful things that I've learned over time is meditation's ability to help you not procrastinate. So 
I used to procrastinate in a million ways that I didn't realize. I would become very distracted by sounds around me, by an email, by a thing that's pulling my attention. And that makes your time extremely fragmented and unproductive and makes you feel unclear. And so through meditation, I recognized each of those distractions were merely distractions and I didn't need to give in to them. In meditation, train yourself in the ability to come back to the thing in front of you and stay there. And so as I became better and better at staving off all these little micro distractions, I became more and more at ease and balanced and able to just stay in the flow of my work. I want to talk about meditation and especially how to incorporate it throughout the day. You were kind enough to invite uh, me to your office in Toronto when Dr. Hyman and I were there just recently. And when you were giving me a tour, one of the things that we saw is that uh, before there was, I believe, a team meeting that was just about to start, they were doing a group meditation, which I thought was so beautiful and so fitting, of course, for the company. How would you recommend, you know, for people that don't work in a meditation company, in a yeah. meditation company, what have been some things that, how does somebody broach the conversation? Because it's, it's so beautiful getting everybody together and just the idea of like taking a pause and getting a chance to reset together as a team, whether somebody's working in a company and also I would love your opinion on, on families. You know, how can they kind of have meditation together as a group? Because I think one thing that people have all seen is that when you do a habit like meditation in the support of other people, not only does everybody get the benefit, but there's sort of this like compounding effect that's, that's there. So I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts on that. Sure. So the first thing you need to do is make sure that everybody's bought in. You know, when we started this, Almost 10 years ago, meditation wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. And so we try to get people in the office to meditate and there would be some bulking. And it was through education about the benefit of it, the like thousand articles that have now been written in scientific journals talking about meditation's ability to improve your attention and decrease your stress, the dozen ways it impacts your brain and on and on. It's through that education that people can sort of start to come on board and say, oh, okay, this is really useful. The other way that people come on board is just feeling the relief that comes from it. And if you sit there and take five deep breaths and relax the tension in your body and just settle into yourself, you cannot help but feel better. So in an environment where people maybe aren't so open to the notion of meditation, if you just say, hey, let's all just sit down for a minute and take some deep breaths together so we can relax and reset, chances are pretty good you're going to get some buy-in. And in that, you just guide people through the simple exercise of sitting down, closing your eyes if you want to or not, relaxing the tension in your back, in your stomach, in your legs, in your face. Take a deep breath and exhale. And another one. And you can do that a couple times. People feel it's weird that you're guiding them through relaxing their tension. You can just say, okay, sit down, relax your face and take a couple deep breaths. And that cannot help but make everybody feel better. And once you start to get some buy-in on that concept, you can do it regularly. We do a drop-in, we call it a drop-in, before every meeting. And that lets everybody in the room simply reset and get in touch with the intention of why they're there. And intention is not a weird spiritual term. It's simply, what do we all intend to do together? What do we want the outcome of this meeting to be? Why are we all here? And then from a family perspective, my kid is now two, which is too young to meditate, but I've introduced the concept of three deep breaths. So whenever he's upset and he upset or whenever he really wants something that he can't necessarily have, 
I say, okay, three deep breaths. And he's so cute. He goes, like these crazy over-exaggerated breaths. But that's exactly what he needs to be doing to trigger his physiology into relaxation. And invariably, when he does that, he ends up calmer at the end and feeling better. So it becomes this very self-reinforcing cycle. And starting at about three, you can all sit down and meditate together. And for little kids, keep it really, really simple. Maybe you're just saying, let's all sit still. Can we sit still for one minute? Because the concept of mind is possibly difficult when you're three years old. But can you just like manage your physiology for three minutes? You know, can we all play the let's sit still for one minute game? Can we play the let's breathe deeply for one minute game? And that's more than enough to begin the introduction. I love it. I think intention is such an important word. You hinted at it earlier when you were talking about your team and getting clear on your intention. So many times throughout the day, we carry the energy of something that has nothing to do with the meeting. You know, let's say a group of team members all get together to talk about a new marketing campaign. And maybe the team leader had a difficult conversation with their husband or wife earlier in the morning, or maybe they had a tragic sort of situation happened to them, or maybe there's something on their mind about things working out and not working out. And you come into a meeting and instead of seeing people for what that meeting has, that value is what we need to be present to right then and there, we're human beings. We carry the energy of one momentum into the next. And I love the idea of using meditation to sort of clear the slate and then set an intention for what we want to do. Do you have any anecdotes or other things that you can share about what you've seen? I mean, it sounds like you've been doing this from day one since you've had the company, but um, what do you notice when people do that? What are the practical aspects that you've seen inside of the business that show up uh, when people get clearer on their intention? It's really powerful. So one of the first things you see is that everybody's now in the meeting and recognizing that you're all there as humans to support one another. So all the garbage that you were dealing with a couple moments earlier goes away and you're all there as a team. Because in order to accomplish something, everybody really needs to be there as a team and support one another as a team. And so a lot of the meditation work that we do also ends up building trust. When you're asking, when you're sharing about your personal experience or your feelings in this moment, what you're doing is you're asking to be seen as who you are and accepted as who you are and then supported for who you are and what you've got going that day. And that is huge. So when you have a culture of trust, then you can all move really quickly because kind of the politics drop and the bullshit drops and it's not like, who do I need to hide this from? It's just like, this is who we are. This is what we're all doing together. Let's go. And when you take that moment of meditation and you all drop into the meeting you all shift your physiology in such a way that you're no longer carrying the anxiety of five minutes ago. So you can walk into the decisions that are in front of you really clear-headedly. You're not being driven by the emotions from previously or the aroused amygdala that you had a few minutes ago that would make you, you know, hyper jumpy at this concept or frustrated or not wanting to share. You just are able to drop all that and go. Beautiful. So beautiful. You've dedicated... Uh, so much of your work around helping people with meditation and mindfulness and creating tools, which we're going to dig into in a second and talk about Muse and all the great stuff that it does. But give us a little bit of an origin story. You know, I was reading a little bit about your background. Um, it sounds like, you know, you're, I read a little bit about your mom and you mentioning your mom <laughs> and how amazing she was. But where did, where did this motivation come from to figure out the world, understand the brain and appreciate meditation? And so my mother actually was a big part of that. 
concept early on because my mother was a visual artist. So she would paint these beautiful large-scale oil on canvas paintings. She's an incredibly joyful person. And I would look at what she would create and like from a completely blank canvas, all of a sudden there'd be all of this color and life, all of her ideas cathected onto this canvas. Like she brought her ideas to life. And that taught me the both possibility and value of being an entrepreneur and the ability to just imagine something and with confidence and clarity, bring it to life. Say that, you know, there's this doesn't exist, but you know what? It is possible. And as a child, I was very interested in how the world worked. You know, why why is this table hard? And since my mom is an artist, I was also interested in how do we create experiences that allow people to perceive the world and themselves differently. And through high school, I worked in a research lab and also had a line of clothing. I was always doing both art and science. And ultimately, those things merged in the creation of Muse, where I was able to, with my team, Chris Amini and Trevor Coleman, my co-founders, create this beautiful experience that allows you to see the world differently um, that was based on really hard science and technology after I um, and also was this like beautiful human experience. And then how did that experience then lead into the idea and the partnership uh, with your founder to intentionally say, let's create something to help people practice meditation and mindfulness? So that was a bit of a circuitous route. Um, I started working with this early brain-computer interface with Professor Steve Mann. He was one of the founders of wearable computer computing, and he was a professor at the University of Toronto. So he had this early brain-computer interface system where, with a single electrode, you could make something happen in the world. So we started creating this concerts where you put a single EEG electrode on your head, and by modulating your level of focus or relaxation, you could change the sound in the room. And I started to work with this and experienced it and started to create experiences with it and said, oh, my God, this is crazy. We're literally controlling the world with our mind and people need to know about this. So I got together with uh, Chris Amini. He's an amazing engineer and very creative thinker. And Trevor Coleman, who at the time was in uh, promotions and management at clubs. So he like really knew how to make great experiences that people loved. And we got together and said, "Okay, well, what's the biggest thing we can do to show people the power of their mind to move things like physical objects. So we created fun things like the levitating chair. As you would relax, the chair would rise. It would detect a change in your alpha waves, and that would trigger a winch in the ceiling to rise a chair. And then we ended up doing this massive project at the Olympics, where in the Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics, people in Vancouver were able to control the lights on the CN Tower, the Canadian Parliament Buildings, and Niagara Falls, using just their brain activity. So we had a single sensor EEG and we taught people to modulate their brain activity by focusing or relaxing, increasing their beta waves or their alpha waves. And we use those as a trigger to actually change the lighting on these big buildings. And so that was extraordinary. And we're like, wow, we can literally control stuff with our minds. This is crazy. We have a direct you know, relationship between the brain and the world. And so we went on to thought to control like everything we can think of. We made thought-controlled slot car machines and video games and toasters and on and on, all the time recognizing that, yeah, controlling stuff with your mind is really fascinating, but there's a, there's a piece that's missing. And in the meanwhile, I was practicing as a psychotherapist, and so mental health and being able to manage your mind state was key to me. Um, Trevor was actually practicing Buddhist. And we came to the realization that the best thing we could do with the technology was not let you control the world outside you but actually help you control your own mind and reflect back your own mental activity 
so that you would have this internal sense, this window onto your own mind to know when you're focused, when you're relaxed, and be able to use that information to meaningfully manage the content of your own brain. And then how long from that time period till you had your first device that people could wear and it was known as Muse. And, and if you could also then explain a little bit about the device and how it's used, I think that'd be really uh, exciting for our listeners to hear. Sure. So the Olympics was in 2010. Uh, we probably started by t- 2012 with this recognition that, wow, we can turn the light inside and make the intangible inner workings of our mind tangible. And so we set about creating Muse and figuring out exactly how we were going to create a compelling experience that trained people in their own mind. And meditation for us was the obvious key, that if we get yet more people to meditate, we would be doing well for the world and well for people's brains. And that meditation is actually something that's quite difficult to do. Most people have a misconception around what it is. And when you sit down to try to meditate, your brain is bouncing all over the place. And you're like, eh, meditation's not for me. I don't know what to do. I'm out of here. And you probably end up feeling a little bit worse, not a little bit better. And so we recognized if we could create a tool that would give you real-time feedback on your brain activity during meditation and guide you into the act of focused attention training and keep you there, then we could create something that was really valuable. And that's when Muse was born. So Muse is a beautiful headband. It's a slim little EEG that slips on just like a pair of glasses. It's a clinical grade EEG and it tracks your brain activity in real time and gives you real-time feedback on your meditation. And the metaphor that we use is your mind is like the weather. So when you're thinking, you're distracted, you're worrying, your brain's bouncing all over the place, you actually hear it as stormy. You're hearing your own mental activity. And as you are guided towards quiet, focused attention, it quiets the storms. And so Muse teaches you how to meditate by guiding you into a focused attention on the breath practice. So you focus your attention on your breath, the sound quiets, your mind wanders, the sound picks up, it cues you that it's wandered, and it brings you back to quiet, focused attention. And as you do this, you're able to access and unlock all the benefits of meditation. So it's been tremendously powerful. We have hundreds of thousands of people that use it, millions of minutes of meditation. And it's been like an extraordinary journey to watch this help transform people's lives. It's great because I think so many times people, you mentioned it, they, uh, one time I saw David Letterman, I saw somebody talking to him about the power of meditation. And he's like, you know, I'm just, really bad at meditation. I sit there and I can't quiet the mind. I can't quiet the mind and I have all these different thoughts. I get upset and I just decide I don't want to meditate. It's not for me. It's not for me. So I'm sure you hear misconceptions like that all the time. And Muse is there to help people fight against some of those misconceptions. And in fact, you wrote an article called It's Okay to Suck at Meditation. It was a medium yes. article. Yeah, tell, tell us about the inspiration behind why you wanted to write that article and what you were addressing in that topic. So most people feel like meditation is maybe just not for them. You know, you hear that meditation is good for you. You see other people meditating, but you sit down to do it and your brain starts to wander. Your mind wanders, which is fine. All our minds wander. And then you don't really know what to do about it. And then, okay, you're like, I'm supposed to stay focused on my breath. So just to clarify, this is based on a focused attention on the breath meditation, uses. And so in a focused attention on the breath meditation, you focus on your breath, your mind wanders, you notice it, you bring it back. Your mind wanders again, you notice it, you bring it back to your breath. So this incredibly simple practice that actually builds your ability to stay out of your negative wandering thoughts, um, to just simply observe your thoughts and strengthens your attention by placing it back on your breath. 
So most people, when they meditate, their mind wanders and then they just feel bad about themselves. And then their mind wanders again and then they feel bad about themselves. So the idea of it's okay to suck at meditation is the idea that actually we all in some way suck at meditation because all of our minds wander. They're beautiful, creative brains and they wander all over the place. And it's your job whenever it wanders and you're meditating to simply notice that it wanders, bring it back non-judgmentally. And in a couple moments, it'll wander again. That's totally okay. You bring it back. And every time you notice that it's wandering and you bring it back, that's actually doing the work of the meditation. That's like the rep at the gym. That's the thing that strengthens the muscle of your attention, the noticing and returning. So actually, even if your brain wanders a hundred times during your meditation and you might feel like it super sucks, that's okay. That was a hundred times you were able to notice and bring it back. And that's where the magic and the work is. So it's totally okay to suck at meditation. It's not always okay to feel bad about it, which totally happens. And then our work is to just, you know, non-judgmentally experience yourself. Yep, my mind's wandering. Totally okay, all of our minds do. Going back to that gym analogy that you shared, you know, if you work out, if you've ever worked out, you know that in the beginning, no matter how many times you worked out, you come to your initial workout, you're a little tight, whether it's yoga, whether it's lifting weights, whether it's cycling, you know that you're a little tight. And because it's the physical body in its physical form, I almost feel like it's a little bit easier for people to understand that, okay, hey, I gotta stretch a little bit. I gotta stretch, I gotta loosen it up a little bit, no matter how fit I am, no matter if I'm an Olympic athlete or somebody else, I gotta stretch, my muscles have gotten a little tight or we need to create some flexibility in it. And then we ramp up the workout. I often think of the first few minutes of meditation as like, it's just us stretching. It's just our mind going through that stretching period. And then we start being able to get into the flow. But I feel like it's a little bit difficult. It's a little bit more difficult because it's often conceptual. It's in our mind. It's in our head. It's, it's just something that exists and muse is really good at making it like physical. Like you can actually hear the sounds, you can see the visions, you can you can understand based on the setting that you choose um, that this is just a period that you're going through and then you can get into the flow where you experience all the benefits of mindfulness and meditation. Totally, we take that intangible, invisible process that happens inside your brain while you meditate and make it tangible and visionable and trackable and actionable. So you're actually seeing real data about what your brain is doing. You can track your meditations one after another and see your improvement over time. And so when you externalize it and make it uh, trackable, you make it real in a whole new light and then something that we're able to understand, manage, control, engage in a whole new way. You talked about meditation and procrastination previously. And you know, we haven't talked too much about entrepreneurship on this podcast and building things, building companies, creating things, even if it's a nonprofit or being the president of your kid's PTA. But anytime you want to build something that is new and different and can create something significant in the world, regardless of what scale it's on, you have to step into some part of you that didn't exist. You might have this vision mm -hmm. and you're trying to take the invisible and make it visible. Um, as a successful founder of a company and now the chief evangelist of, of that company, uh, you know, you guys have raised millions of dollars. I'm sure you advise entrepreneurs. I'm sure people come to you and they give you advice like, how do I get started? How do I do this? How do I do that? Of course, there's always practical things that are there. But in addition to procrastination, which is very real, 
what are other things that you talk about of why meditation can be crucial in their process of building, of building something and birthing something that previously didn't exist? Oh, that's a beautiful question. So we've talked about a few pieces of that. And one is, of course, the negative thoughts and the negative dialogue, because that negative dialogue can really get in your way. When you're building something that didn't exist before, there's a whole lot of uncertainty and uncertainty can cause our brain to dive into some very negative places or uncertainty can cause our brain to dive into some really energized places. But being able to manage your internal mental dialogue and your internal conception of that during that process is key. And the other is being able to make space for the possible. So when we sit in a brain that's chattering and filled with ideas that aren't necessarily productive, they're just competing with one another. When our brain is just filled with a bunch of mental chatter, it's hard to see clearly. It's hard to sort of have the vision be clear around you because you have so much chatter. And meditation actually downregulates a part of our brain called the default mode network. When you're lying in an MRI and you tell somebody to just lie there and think of nothing, what you see is activation in this default mode network. It's a relationship between your prefrontal cortex and posterior cingulate cortex. And it's really our internal dialogue, which we talk about as our monkey mind or internal chatter. When somebody's a long-term meditator, you see a down-regulation of that network. You see a decrease in activity there. And you have a corollary experience of not having a chatter going on in your head. And so when you do have ideas and insights, those insights are extremely clear. They're not jumbled and clouded. They're super clear. So meditation actually improves your ability to have critical insight. I love that. That's incredible. I think also as a fellow entrepreneur, I think that one thing, you know, people say, what's the toughest thing about being an entrepreneur or what are some of the challenges that you think I need to be wary of? And often people think very practically. They think about, okay, how do I raise money or how do I use cash flow to get the company started or should I have mentors? And I often start with fear. And I think one of the biggest challenges with being an entrepreneur that nobody really talks about, you see more of it more recently, but it's the fear that you deal with on a regular basis of things not working out. And so many of those fearful thoughts, especially if it's your first company, just come from old unconscious things that are in that default pattern in our minds. It could be that grade school teacher that when you were struggling reading said, you know, you're not a good reader and you internalized it and that's coming up for you. Or it could be, your friend who wasn't supportive of your idea or your parents who said that, um, you know, don't be an entrepreneur, do something a little bit more practical. And all those things, when they add up, you don't choose to think them. They're just there. And I think learning how to identify that fear and name it, you know, the boogeyman that's always the scariest is the one that you can't see. It's like finally in the movie, when you get to see the monster, you're like, okay, that wasn't that bad. But when you can't see it, it's like really scary. And when you name it and then you address it head on, you can sit with it and decide if you need to do something practical to address it, which sometimes you do, or whether or not it's just this sensation or this energy that you don't own and nobody else owned. It's just been kind of floating out there and stuck to you for a little bit but you identified with it. So I think meditation is an incredible tool to address that fear that uh, is often never our own. Yes, it's the story that you do not need that you can drop. 
It's the story, you know, we all write these stories that define ourselves and it's happening at every single moment. You're constantly writing, rewriting the story of who you are, who you are in the world, what it means to you, what your past was, how you should act. And people are writing that story for you in real time too. And so when you have the ability to drop those stories and write a new one, it is massively liberating, massively. We just had Dr. Dan Siegel, one of the founders of the modern mindfulness movement mm-hmm. on the podcast. His podcast actually released uh, this week, the same week as, um, as World Mental Health Day. Incredible individual, big fan of his. And one of the things I really appreciate about his work that he's done over the years is not only does he talk about and pull together research from other people, but at UCLA's Mindfulness Institute, he actually is doing research and putting out some really profound uh, studies on mindfulness and meditation. And the thing that I appreciate about uh, Muse, amongst just how well the app works and the and the headband, is you guys do some of your own research as well. Can you give us a little bit of a highlight on some of the things that you've learned from some of the studies that you've been involved with? Sure. So we actually have lots of different studies with Muse. We have over 200 different research institutions that use Muse in a wide variety of ways. Places like Mayo, NASA is even using it in studies, uh, Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. One of the first studies we saw was by Baycrest Hospital in Toronto, and they had individuals using Muse for 10 minutes a day over six weeks. And those individuals saw a decrease in somatic symptoms, so less headache, pain, nausea, They saw an increase in calm. And then what they also saw was an increased reaction time on something called the Stroop task. So in the Stroop task, you're shown a word that is a color in a different color. And your brain gets very readily confused by this. But if you are able to meditate, you're able to actually tell, say what color it is much faster and much more effectively because your brain is able to process conflicting pieces of information in stressful situations more readily. Then we saw... Another study out of the Catholic University in Milan that demonstrated that result again. We saw an increased reaction time in Stroop tasks, so increased reaction time in a stressful situation. We saw improvements in other cognitive tasks, and we saw a persistent improvement in brain activity, demonstrating that somebody was spending more time in a calm and focused state, even when they weren't musing. It's incredible. Super fascinating. And I think that as mindfulness and meditation continues to explode, which even in the last three years, it's just incredible. I can't wait to see what other studies and things come out there that help people reinforce just what they already know if they've been practicing meditation. But when you see it and you see the experiences that people have had and you see the data, uh, you know, there's a group of people that are, that's what they need. That's what they need to get started Um, Besides the fact that it's just fascinating to know how the mind works. In addition to the studies, the device is always evolving. And I've seen that you're just about to launch or you launched Muse 2. Tell us about that version of the device. What's new in it? And what have you added in based on the prior experiences of people using the headband and the app? So we've just launched a new Muse, Muse 2. It's incredibly exciting. And to Muse 2, we've added additional sensor capabilities. So now you can not just get real-time feedback on your brain activity, but you can also get real-time feedback on your heart, on your breath, and on your movement. So although a lot of people see meditation as a mental activity, getting your body and your physiology ready is key to being able to relax your mind. Figuring out how to sit properly, getting in touch with your body, relaxing the tension, focusing on your breath, all of these things are a part of the experience of meditating and understanding physiologically what's going on inside. So we've built a range of new experiences in Muse too. 
First, you start by understanding how to sit properly. So the experience is you're sitting inside of a set of virtual wind chimes. And as you come to a quiet place, a comfortable posture, you stop fidgeting, the chimes to quiet down. And so it tells you every time you move and every time you fidget, which is reflection of a movement or a fidget in the mind. It does it with the noise of a chime that you've virtually bumped into. It's really amazing. Then in the heart experience, you can actually hear your own heartbeat, like the beating of a drum. So you're actually hearing your own physiology. And you can do the kind of real-time feedback with heart rate variability, like um, feedback that's been known to calm the body so effectively. And then we have a series of breath experiences where, again, you're hearing your breathing and hearing your breath in real time. And we guide you through a range of different breathing practices like anxiety breathing. So how to relax yourself when you have anxiety, box breathing, four by four by four, pranayama yoga to increase your energy. And so you now have this total experience of the mind, the body, the breath and the heart. And you're an experienced meditator. You grew up with some meditation and you've been doing this for a while. Give us kind of paint a picture in a day of how you would, how you use Muse on a day-to-day basis. So I would start with a Muse session in the morning and that really gets my day set, sets my intention and it sets my body and my physiology. And then throughout the day, I go back to the practice that I've learned with Muse regularly. So the idea is not that you Muse all the time. The idea is that you're training a practice or an experience that you then have with you to use throughout the day. And as you use it, the experience throughout the day, you strengthen it. You strengthen your mindfulness. You strengthen your ability to be present and be engaged and be calm. And then I like to do a Muse session at night to sort of wind me down, turn off the work day, turn on the creative mind and get straight into that beautiful zone that I love to work with. I know some people take their muses to work with them. So if you have a stressful moment, you can just take a muse break. And it's something that you can do even at your desk. Incredible. And, and tell us, for the listeners who are listening, how can we find out more about muse? How can we get the device? And where can we find out more about the incredible work that you're doing as an advocate in the space of mindfulness and, and meditation? And are you on social media? Uh, yeah, give us the whole download. Okay. Um, so you can find it about muse at choosemuse.com. You can buy it there or at Amazon or Best Buy, one of your, wherever you like to buy stuff. Uh, for myself, my website is arielgarten.com, A-R-I-E-L-G-A-R-T-E-N.com. You can find me on the socials on Instagram at Ariel's Musings and Twitter, ariel.garten. Incredible. And I saw on Instagram, you had mentioned that you grew up in a house that would practice urban farming. And obviously food <laughs> yes. is so dear to our heart over here. Do you have foods or snacks that you like that are sort of your brain fuel? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in an amazing urban farm. We would literally have corn on our front yard in downtown Toronto. And so that really instilled in me the passion for food and growing food and food's ability to manage your body and help you love life through loving food. Uh, In terms of specific brain foods, blueberries are amazing for the brain. Anything dark and leafy greens that has tons of polyphenols and great vitamins, you know, kale, parsley, arugula, all of it's great for you. And a lot of it grows in my garden. And then, of course, you can't beat oily fish for its ability to give you a great dose of DHA omega-3s. Awesome. All right, y'all, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and talking about so many incredible subjects from anxiety to how to create a better, resilient, 
office space with the power of meditation to an incredible inspiration that led to the founding of Muse and what the app can do and the headband can do for us. We really, really appreciate you joining us here and sharing your wisdom and knowledge and story with us. My joy and tremendous pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Drew. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes especially when it comes to your health.